for me, the, these are the kind of stories that I, I love, you know, like stories of our regulars. We get to know them. They become our friends and, and we have parties with them at their houses and, and vice versa. They get invited to staff parties. And these, these are the kind of interactions and stories that I, I really love about PS40. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The awareness of waste in hospitality in general has become a real focus for many. When we think of waste, we generally think of food, but the wine and cocktail bar sector are also making waves with change. How does this affect the offering and experience and what does the bar of the future look like? Michael Jem is the owner of PS40 in Sydney. Michael, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. You've got one of uh, the best um, bars in Australia at the moment. You've won accolades already in its short history. What sort of role is waste reduction happening, have on the industry? Um, It's hard one to say for the whole industry, but I mean, I've worked from high scale to uh, like big big scale venues in the casino and in hotels and et cetera. And, And then emptying out the bins in my own tiny little cocktail bar is is i guess you're a lot more um wary of um what kind of waste that you're using and, and and what you're doing and when it's your money as well going into the bin that's that's much more obvious um and i'd say like it's been a big topic for a little while um to the point where a lot of bars all around the world are opening up no waste or zero waste kind of style bars and that's their that's their selling point for us it plays for us um I mean, the big thing I notice and the the big thing for us is that we have these eight taps on the back bar of PS40 that a lot of people often think are beer taps. And and the things that pour out of them um, equate in a very small uh, bottle bin wastage for us at the end of the day, which is pretty amazing. Um, So I probably wouldn't fill a a bottle bin in in the entire, like even, even the busier service that we have on a Friday, Saturday night. Uh, my, my tiny little bottle bin won't fill up. And, and I think that's pretty awesome in, in regards to my previous experiences in working in, in cocktail bars, where, where especially with like sodas, splits, bottles of wine, bottles of spirits, um, those, those are the, the bottles that end up in general waste bins because um, uh, t- like space is a, a big commodity in hospitality, right? Um, and, and to, to that point as well, waste is a very big point, I guess, in the bigger scheme of things. Like I've, I've noticed our, our waste guy has been throwing, and this kind of sucks a lot. Um, we've been working during the days during lockdown, and I've been seeing the bins get emptied out in the mornings. Um, and they, they all, 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 the, all the bins that we empty into end up all in the same truck, which is, which is pretty alarming. Tell us about PS40. It's... Um... It's a, it's a little bit different for, for, a, for a bar. It's very progressive. And your approach to food as well is a little bit different as well. Tell us a bit about the bar. Yeah, well, the bar itself is, I guess, an expression of uh, myself and, and the people that work in it. So that it doesn't really transport you to a time and place. Um, my experience is, is pretty heavily restaurant-based as a bartender. So I, I grew up as a bartender working in a lot of restaurants before I worked in uh, cocktail bar or primarily cocktail bar only venues. Um, 
And so we experiment and, and, and make drinks in a bit more of a culinary focus, if, if you could describe that. But there is no time and a place for us. So we, we don't have a spirit focus or, um, or a, a style of drink focus. Um, but it's funny, like a lot of people will come into the bar and, and bartenders that know us will see a drink come out and they'll describe it as a very PS40 drink, which is something, which is something that I've still yet to define. Uh, but I mean, for us, flavor is the most important thing. Um, and then if you can tie awesome things like, uh, no waste or, or less waste or, um, something that's local and all these keywords that are often used, I like those that's just that's just a, a bonus for us if you know what i mean so for us like it's always experience flavor and uh, i guess a sense of community in the bar which is the most important thing for me um and as as you can see from the pictures as well the the bar is pretty plain it's it's black and white um with pops of color here and there so a, a bit of a blank canvas for us to keep progressing and and changing things up I want to explore that sort of culinary approach to the drinks that you make. And but your background is in restaurants. Take take us back to to when you were really young. What what, what sort of role did food play on you as a kid? Um, well, as a kid, I was pretty lucky. I guess mum mum and dad um, were always like they 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 fled Vietnam when uh, like during the war, and. Um, made a big deal of making me try not just Vietnamese food. So, you know, um, they, they made a big effort of trying to cook. My sister actually took me to my first nice ever restaurant that I went to. And I remember it very clearly. I went to Bodega uh, when I was 18 years old. I'm 32 now. Um, and I was blown away by how ridiculously professional and nice everything was. Um, <laughs> And that might have been one of the first instances where I've ever tried raw fish as well. Um, and and the service back in those days, you know, it's owner-operated. So everyone that opened that venue up was working there. And um, it was a pretty amazing experience. And I guess that kind of her, – her, her willingness and, and her proximity to all these restaurants in Surrey Hills led me to – delve into it a bit further um and my first job was just running food at wagamama at the galleries victoria and i was getting paid a measly little 13 dollars an hour at that time and uh having the greatest time of my life um and after that uh my first nice restaurant job after after one more job uh I, my first bar job was at the novotel at brighton la sands where i was lucky enough to to work with a very tight-knit crew who he trained me up very quickly. I mean, a lot of people do their time as barbacks for, for many years before they even get to make a drink. So I was really lucky enough to, to speed through that a bit faster than normal. Um, and that's something that I try to emulate here as well. Like you don't really have to do your time if you're, you're ready to, to make it to the next level, you know? What was it about? the hospitality sector that, that lured you in? What, what did you love about it? Um, I like talking to people, I guess. I like having a good time. Um, and that's probably the most important thing. Um, I did go to university as soon as I finished high school and I did 
uh, four and a half years of university, two different degrees to, to no avail. Um, I was working at the glass, bra glass brasserie with Luke Mengen as the exec chef. Um, and that was my first ever nice restaurant experience. I learned how to carry three plates and with, with napkins and they were steaming hot. So you had to do it properly. And I'd always get yelled by Joe Pavlovich if the, if the sauce was running down the side. Um, yeah, so that was the most daunting learning curve for me because I'd never worked in such a, such a beautiful and um, well-serviced restaurant. Learning how to serve a bottle of wine was, was I, I didn't really know that there were, there were ways to serve a bottle of wine, for example. So that was pretty awesome. Um, and, th and that's where um, I learned all of the old school ways of service. And um, we obviously don't do them um, to the T to the at uh, our little cocktail bar because it's much more casual um, than going for a big dinner at Glass Brasserie. But small elements that I love doing um, that make service really nice, uh, we, we continue to do in a casual bar environment. You mentioned that your background is in restaurants. What were the what were some of the really key venues that you worked at um, that has sort of given you the foundation to go on and do your own thing? Yeah, um, I guess so. Glass was my first nice job, but then um, I was given the opportunity to become the bar manager at Black by Ezard when it first opened up in the casino. I think that would have been roughly eight or nine years ago. Um, and I was quite young, so I would have been 23, roughly. And uh, Craig Hemmings was the restaurant manager at the time. And he's got a big knack for hiring quite young, up-and-coming hospitality staff. Um, so I was really lucky to be able to get a job there as the bar manager. I don't think at that time especially hiring a bar manager at the age of 23 was, was, was something that often happened. Um, you kind of had to prove your time a little bit back in those days. Whereas now I think it's, it's way more often having someone run a venue at the age of 23. So Black, Black was my first shot at opening a venue and, and running a team. And that kind of catapulted me to start looking, after a year and a half of that, I started looking after Sokyo at the same time and I became really good friends with Chase Kojima as well. Um, and having the responsibility of two cocktail menus and co two cocktail teams was, was pretty awesome for me and dealing with, you know, Japanese style food versus uh, contemporary grill was pretty awesome as well. And, and, and my time there kind of, I guess, was a good springboard for me to um, then move on to smaller venues, more independently operated venues, um, and and get to me get me to where I am today. Sokyo is one of Australia's best Japanese restaurants. Do you have any stories of that time of communicating the the drinks to match with that incredible food? Um, Sokyo, for me, was one of the my favourite restaurants to go to. Um, I was finishing work, I think it was every second Friday, me and James Ordas, um, who was a sommelier there at the time, um, would just call quickly 
at 9.30 and, and we got the early finish that day and just see if we could squeeze in and get dinner just, just as our, fish, uh, fin- our shift was finishing. So I'm pretty sure I, I, I ate sushi there at least like 20 times before I even got a job at Tokyo. And um, back in those days, like Chase was always on the pass um, and I'd never experienced anything like it. That style of like making uh, a little morsel of sushi and, and you're eating it straight away. Very similar to a cocktail making, I guess. Like you're sitting on the counter, things taste fresh as they come off and best as soon as you receive them. Um, and it's very indicative. Like I'm, I'm getting customers coming in um, during lockdown, we were doing a, an array of drinks delivered and there were two ones that didn't have a great shelf life. We, we said, if you order it on the day, you should be drinking it that day. And then the rest of the drinks could sit for a month in your fridge. And they're coming in and experiencing their, these exact drinks, but they're receiving them within seconds of something getting blitzed, something getting shaken. And it's the flavor is world apart, worlds apart. Like I, I was happy with what we were delivering during lockdown, but drinking something or eating something immediately after it's prepared within seconds is, is just something else. And that's something that really attracted me to Sokyo as well as the hotel. The hotel is a beautiful hotel, um, despite like a lot of people uh, would criticize it being in the casino. Um, you didn't get that entire vibe when you went to Sokyo because you're entering through a beautiful hotel, you know, entering through a casino. Um, and so I, I quite enjoyed that luxurious kind of entrance. Um, and Chase's food is amazing. Um, he, he's had a great team since, since day one. Those two drinks that you mentioned that were uh, should be experienced not unlike omakase, um, run, run us through those. Well... Um, we ended up nicknaming this one the. So I, I guess in bars you always have these like stupid puns that always like attract uh, your guests, and they're like, it's kind of fun. Like it's it's going to be something fun to say. So we caught when we locked down, we called it the Gladys Gimlet, um, which is a, a little bit more controversial these days. But um, it just kind of you know had that alliteration. It was. Um, pretty obvious at the time and basically all it was was a very simple preparation of gin fresh lime sugar which would classify as uh, a simple gimlet but for me gimlets are always about cordials and cordials for me are all about oils so we would take the peel like one 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 lime twist off a of off a lime with a with a peeler add that to the cocktail as well as some freshly grated or microplaned macrate lime and combine that all together. But instead of shaking it, we would blend it. So we'd blitz it in a thermomix so that all the oils would essentially somewhat almost dissolve into the drink before we would then transfer that to a shaker and then shake that up. Just almost like a a really uh, long-ended daiquiri, I guess, with gin but with all these essential oils from these fresh fruits 
Um, and it just has such a nice mouthfeel, zestiness, freshness. Um, and, and that was one of them. And then the other one was a spicy Vedita margarita. So um, this one was a, another blended preparation um, as well as shaken. So um, pineapple with parsley, mint, jalapeno, bit of salt, um, some lime. And then we would blend that with a bit of ice. And the ice, um, ideally, would try to slow down the oxidization of that nice fresh greenness you get from the parsley, mint, jalapeno. And then you just, we just shake that up simply as a margarita, so tequila, lime, and agave. Um, but, but it's all in that preparation. It's that coldness, that freshness that you want to have. It's, it ideally, should be green by the time you receive it. Um, if you know what I mean, like it, it's, it's, it's got to be done straight away and on that day. You've made such an incredible impact with PS40 in such a short period of time. How did it all come about? Um, I guess like any bartender kind of dreams about opening a bar. And as you delve into the hospitality industry, that dream, you fall in and out of it because you realize how hard it is to open a bar and how, how much work and money goes into it. Um, and you question whether or not that's the right path to go down. Um, and I guess for me, especially working in a larger venues and then having experiences in smaller independently run venues, I really enjoyed having the power or the ability to change something. Um, one thing that I've learned is you can't change something all the time if you don't have the money for it. But ap apart from that, if I wanted to change drink or something about my venue on the day, as long as it was reasonable and, and, and I had the funds for it, I could do it. And, and that freedom to be able to um, not have to answer to someone, I think is something that I really attracted me to opening a venue and, and creating drinks in whatever fashion I'd like. And, and it's very much so my style, I guess. Um, and, then, and that's why I'm here every day as well. Bars bring in all sorts of people. Have, have you got any customer stories that stand out for you? Um, no particular story in, in, in general. I mean, the, for, for me, PS40 is all about the regulars. So the people who come in and support us day in and day out and, and just, it's, a, it's, you know, if they don't come in on a Tuesday when they always come in, we'd be like, we'd send them a text and just make sure that they're okay, you know? Like, that's, that's, that, that for me is the greatest thing, you know? Like, and especially when my team would notice, like, for example, if Gabs doesn't come in on a Tuesday, they'll, they'll, they'll be closing down the bar and they're like, everything all right with him? Like, you know, like, just, just, just making sure he's okay. And, and for me, the, these are the kind of stories that, uh, that I, I love, you know, like stories of our regulars. We get to know them. Uh, quite often, a lot of our they become our friends, and and we have parties with them at their houses, and and vice versa. They get invited to staff parties, and these these are the kind of uh, interactions and stories that I, I really love about PS40.
the approach that you have towards drinks is a little bit left of center and there's a, there's a bit of a culinary undertone and, and it's all about flavor. And, and tell us about this Syria and where did it emerge from? Um, probably definitely from working in restaurants, you have a larger, um, you have a much larger access to pieces of equipment that you're not normally uh, you would not normally see in a lot of cocktail bars back in those days. So, for example, you know, if we wanted to roast something, if we wanted to sous vide something, if we wanted to bake something or ask a pastry chef about something, all these tools were available to us. And I guess that's built my repertoire of what you can do to a drink. And then, and when we first opened up, I, I will admit, I think we were aiming, like the bar industry is always is quite often heading into obscurity. You'll see a lot of awesome bars around the world coming up with some absolute crazy, wacky uh, flavor combinations, you know, and and that's that's their thing. And for a, for a little moment there, it was kind of our thing. And as I've kind of matured and the bars matured through throughout the years, I've decided that's definitely not my style as much, you know. Um, I am starting to become a bit more of an older bartender and deciding that um, you can do some interesting things, but at the same time have them uh, simple for customers to uh, interpret. So some of the preparations at our bar will take, you know, two or three days before the cocktail can even be made. But when guests come in, the flavor combination isn't, isn't a adverse reaction for them. They're not thinking, Oh, that's a bit weird. Or that's, that's a bit crazy. Um, but then the drink speaks for itself when they drink it, hopefully. And there's plenty of layers of flavor textures, um, so yeah, maybe 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 that's the restaurant coming out of me as well. You know, um, a lot of bartenders experience a lot of molecular kind of gastronomy when they first start, and that's super awesome. And I guess I've kind of toned it down a little bit and, and made things a bit more approachable in in the last year or two, as as lockdown has come in and out. What's exciting you in a drinks sense at the moment? Um, I guess the 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 standard for us is, is quite a high one and that's that's our most popular drink or serve at the bar and uh, it's called the Africola it's it's a three ingredient cocktail although uh, so we make an, a native cola based off wattle seed and about 15 other ingredients and we carbonate it and it, it pours through one of our our taps here so once it's carbonated um, we pull that out we add a frozen shot of Mr. Black and our, our, our freezers are, are, are very cold. Um, not necessarily very expensive, but they've, they've turned out to be the coldest ones I can find. And um, so you've got a very cold bottom layer and, a, and then we add a warm foam of coconut, which is just simply made out of coconut cream, milk, and a little touch of normal cream. And it's sat in the siphon at 70 degrees. So you're getting something between minus 25 to 70 degrees as a contrast. And we always encourage people 
to drink through the foam. So we say to them, it's not too strong. Try drink through the layer so you get both flavors uh, at a go. And for some reason, our brains are, are programmed to um, not be surprised when it goes from cold to hot, but we freak out when it goes from hot to cold. Um, and just watching that reaction, uh, whenever I serve one in the bar, and if they've never had one, I kind of walk away from a distance and have a little, have a little, have a little look at the reaction. And and mo like ninety nine percent of the time, it's it's one of shock and at the same time a bit of a smile. Um, and then the the drink gets passed around the table, and everyone has a bit of a laugh. And we get lots of people coming in just simply drinking those that this one drink. Um, and for me, that's that's the standard now. So. I want to be making, like, it's not possible all the time, but I want to be making drinks that uh, people can enjoy these particular reactions. Um, so that's that's what I think about when we make new drinks here. I'm like, I want people to, to have a little laugh, smile, and really enjoy the drink while they're drinking it. One of the fascinating things you've been doing is that connection with your restaurant background with um, Takeover Tuesdays. Um, how did that come about and, and what are you celebrating? Well, it came about from the first lockdown. Um, oh, well, just before that, actually, we re, uh, the, the business actually had a bit of a change. Me and my old business partner, Tor, who now looks after the soda side of the business, which is unfortunately, uh, closing, closing down pretty soon. Um, we we had we we decided to expand the soda production just before the first lockdown hit, so we moved all the soda uh, producing equipment offsite, and I was left with a bit of a empty space where it used to be, and um, didn't bother doing anything at that time of the year because the year was almost over, and then COVID hit early the year after. And as we reopened, I was so worried about opening on a Tuesday or a Monday. We used to operate seven days a week here. And so we started with Wednesday, Saturday, and it was going really well. So I thought, okay, let's do Tuesday, but let's make it, let's give people a bigger reason to come out to the city on a Tuesday. The, the city was dead. It's th the city is still dead compared to what it used to be. So one of the restaurants around the corner was closed and I was friends with the head chefs at Alejandro and Galia from Chica Vinita, which is unfortunately now closed. Um, but I just said to them, why don't you come make some tacos? It's Tuesday, like Taco Tuesdays. That's a, that's a pretty easy hook. Like, that's been done before. Um, and if no one comes, you know, me and, me and Pete will eat your tacos and uh, we'll, you'll drink our drinks. You know, that's, that's as simple as it. And it turns out that the offering was exactly what people were after. Um, and it has this kind of house party vibe in a sense, you know, like there's an exchange between the chef and the bartender. And if you're a customer, you're just a part of the party, you know. Um, and since then, it's never really stopped. We've done almost every single Tuesday that we've been open. Um, since then rotating with chefs um and it's an affordable menu so that, that we've got it down to a bit of a formula now it's 65 dollars because you're getting a, a cocktail on arrival so it means at 
um, I mean, without sounding um, like a aggressive businessman, but I, like for, uh, we're a cocktail bar. I need to be able to sell a cocktail per person. Like if you don't drink one other, like if you don't drink another drink for the whole night, that's completely fine. Um, so we, we needed to guarantee like one drink sale from per person. So we decided, you know what, $65, you gets you one drink and basically dinner from the chefs. And I think that's a pretty awesome deal, you know, $65 on a Tuesday, getting dinner from some of the best chefs in Sydney um, is pretty awesome. And it, it's done in a very fun environment. There's not much, the, the formula is most things should be eaten with your hands or minimal cutlery. We're still in a cocktail bar. You're getting four, four to five to sometimes six bites or pieces of things or serves. Um, so you're getting like a, a, in a sense, the cheapest set menu, degustation, snacky kind of thing going on every night. And it's fun, it's fast paced, it's different every second Tuesday when the, the chefs change. Um, and I, for me, the business model is that uh, for me, I, I give all the profit, all, sorry, all the takings on food to the chefs on the Tuesdays. So if they design it pretty well, it's a, it's a tidy little takeaway for them. And um, I get a busy bar on a Tuesday, which, which, which is amazing, especially in these kind of times. And, and Tuesdays have proven to be sometimes busier than our Friday, Saturdays, which is awesome. You've done many of these collaborations. Is there, is there one uh, that stands out? There's a few. Um, I would probably say the most ridiculous ones would be, uh, so for example, Take of Tuesday is about supporting up and coming younger chefs, right? They're meant to be, shine, like for me, I lo I'd love to shine the light on sous chefs that are hiding behind the, you know, the Lennox Hasties, the Neil Perry's, the Chase Kojima's or whatever. Uh, the ones that, you know, are in the restaurant constantly always turning around, but no one knows about them, right? Um, when I asked Corey, because uh, my wife used to work at Rockpool, and we've become good friends. I asked Corey if he had any up-and-coming young guns um, that he would like to suggest, and he suggested that himself and Santiago, the head chef, uh, come, come across and do the Takeover Tuesday. So they've done two now in the space of a year, like one, basically one year apart from each other. Um, and those have been the most ridiculous Takeover Tuesdays for me because... Um, uh, every every Tuesday, the team we always have a chat as we're closing down. Uh, when the chefs have left, we, we always have a little debrief, and I love seeing how different chefs go about, you know, setting up their mise en passe, doing their service, how cool, calm, collected they are, um, how they go about it. You know, everyone's got their own formula, and and Corey and Santi are the, the they're they're like the it's like going to the ballet. You know, like it's just all class and uh, so smooth, you know. Um, and, and you can tell that they've, they've just had the most amazing hospitality career because uh, especially as a chef, you know, people leaving my venue um, that might not have even eaten that night, but they'll always get a little thanks for coming in. 
um, and a little like wave from the chefs as they they walk past the kitchen. I think that's that's a great kind of sign as well, you know, chefs that aren't just always cooking the food. They're they're here for the service as well. So um, yeah, the two rock pool chefs are probably the most ridiculous ones I've ever seen. You mentioned the importance of community, but what's a what's a great night uh, for you at PS Forty? Um, a great night for me is probably, um, I, I guess we're pretty lucky here. We, we, we generally get a great array of guests coming through and they're always here to, um, to enjoy our company, to appreciate our drinks. Um, so most nights are a great night because we just have the most polite, engaging guests. Like there's, there's nothing, I mean, and, and, and I guess that's partly our job as well, you know, like I've always learned as a bartender, not everyone wants to be treated the same. So if, if there's someone there that just is sipping a beer, not really wanting to engage with you, 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 don't, you don't try to get something out of that person for no reason, you know, like he, he, that person might want to just have a bit of like peace and quiet. Um, and, and a lot of our guests are the ones that quite often ask a lot of questions. Um, in our particular area, I love a night where there's a bit of a bar crawl. So we've got like four or five, six awesome bars in our area. So they'll be bouncing from each other and getting recommendations from other bars to come here and vice versa. So th- those are the nights where I think community uh, holds the strongest, where you know they've, they've been sent on a bar crawl from all the bartenders in the area. And it's not a competition between bartenders. It's, no, I want you to go drink at the bar down the road from us, you know, and have a great time. The last year and a half has been very challenging, but Sydney's opening up again and vaccination rates are really high. How are you feeling? Is, is, is there opportunities from this way forward? I'm feeling good so far. I guess second week in, it's hard to really say. Um the I've learned to be, I guess, maybe a little bit more pessimistic about uh, reopening. Um, after the first reopening, things were going really well. Things were reopening to one per two square meters. We were busier than ever. And the city was coming back to life. I remember on the last few Friday, Saturday nights, oh, sorry, last few Friday nights, um, the 5 p.m. clientele were coming in. Uh, and the same reaction was given back to us from them. They were like, we haven't been in the office for a whole year, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And they were having Friday drinks, which is something that I haven't seen for a while. Um, So I'm I'm just taking things one step at a time at the moment. Um, After the first lockdown, I never thought there'd be a second one. Um, And I was naive to think that. Um, So I'm just kind of just pacing myself one step at a time, get to the end of the year, I've been slowly chipping away at the venue um, to, to try and make it a little bit nicer after five years in operation. Um, so yeah, not, 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 a, not a huge future approach for me. Just, just get through each week do, doing it the best we can. What are you looking forward to? Um, looking forward to getting some new bar stools, to be honest. <laughs> it's a really stupid thing to say, but just small things like that, I think I, I've realized like, for bartenders, like when when I was 
when we first opened up this place, the, the, the first thing I thought about was how awesome my stainless steel would be, you know, like as a bartender, you know, you, these are your tools of the trade. And now I'm thinking, oh, I need more comfy chairs for, for people actually paying for the drinks. Um, and when we first opened up, it was, it was pretty, pretty budget. Um, a lot of the chairs were made by ourselves. Um, my mom uh, did an amazing job with upholstery, but after five years in a busy, busy, busy service, uh, the cushioning isn't quite the same anymore. So looking forward to getting that in. Um, looking forward to rebuilding the team as well. Um, when when we first locked down, we had a team of six bartenders, um, which held true to the capacity that you could have on a Friday night. Now I only really need uh, three to four. So looking forward to, to having a bit more on the team and, Hopefully, more people coming back into Sydney to to actually work in hospitality. Well, um, Michael, hopefully that time is only just around the corner as uh, everything opens up again. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds to hear your story today. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thanks for your time. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.